Hey, uh, true crimers. <laughs> that sounds so stupid. I don't know if I want to do hey pals every time, but I can't think of anything better and like Cabernet and true crime is too long for like a, a, like a nickname. I don't know. I'm working on it. Okay. So we're going to get just right, right into it. I don't really have an intro for this one. I haven't been watching the news because that time in my life is over and, uh, yeah, so, cool. Um, we do have an update, though. Um, so, CabernetAndTrueCrime.com is my website, and for the um, longest time, I was kind of embarrassed by it. I mean, obviously, I'm not a computer programmer, and I don't know shit about making a website, but it wasn't always awful, and then it got kind of awful and corny and lame and, like, just completely disorganized, and then I hated it, and I just ignored it for, you know six months. (laughs) No, no big deal. So I spent time and I know I posted something about it, but like I, my website looks so beautiful now. It took me sitting down for like four and a half hours to sort it out and get things updated and get the links done, but you can watch every YouTube episode in one spot. You don't have to try to find me on YouTube because nobody watches me on YouTube. (sighs) So you can find me there. And, um, you can also listen to the podcast from there. There's a Podbean player in there. So if you want like to listen on your laptop, that website works really well for that. Um, it doesn't look that great on a real laptop, but it looks great on mobile, which it also works for that. Also, I found out that my podcast is on Podcoin. If you use that app, apparently you can get money for listening to podcasts. I have tried to claim it as mine and Although they told me they would message me in 48 hours, it has been a week. So I don't think they're going to get back to me anytime soon. Um, But it is on there, and I don't know if you want to make money listening to the podcast. This one's going to be kind of long, so earn them coins. Go for it. Um, So that's that. Uh, I'd like to credit, you know, bullet journaling to getting my shit together, because for a while it was really kind of a mess and now I think I'm at like a great pace for keeping up and now that I have the Patreon kind of set up I have a structure to the podcast and I can plan for what I want to post and when I want to post it and when I want to take breaks and I think having that kind of structure really helps me out and can make me be able to deliver things instead of just promising stuff so I'm really happy with that uh, even if I, you know, <laughs> you want to go on that or not, cool. But I really do think having that kind of structure is really helping me out. So that's exciting. Um, for this crime today, I would really, really, really love to thank Rachel again for um, suggesting a crime to cover. She honestly has the best recommendations, and I'm seriously incredibly grateful for her assistance. And it's always easier to like do what you want me to do instead of just trying to come up with ideas on my own because there are so many true crime stories to cover. I have a list of over 150 serial killers that I mean it's overwhelming at this point and there's some that I may gloss over because from like an initial look at a Wikipedia page I can't you know there's not that much on there so I'm like well maybe that's not that interesting of a story until somebody's like, oh, have you heard of this person? And you're like, holy 
shit, no, I did not know about this. But like, so Terry Blair, the person I'm covering today, is honestly one of those situations where he was on my list, but I had completely overlooked him because there's really not a lot of information on his Wikipedia page. You really have to kind of deep dive into finding the information you want from him. And honestly, these are so much more fun. If you wanted to read a Wikipedia page, you would. You wouldn't come to a podcast to listen to me read a Wikipedia article. I think that's so stupid. So I don't ever want to do that. And those are boring for me. Like, researching and getting those interesting intricacies, say that five times fast, it's that makes this fun for me. And I like listening and like doing crimes that aren't as popular. Everybody's heard of Ted Bundy. Everybody's heard of John Wayne Gacy. These serial killers, as fascinating as they are, and you know, they caused a lot of havoc and a lot of chaos and the public and the true crime community has heard about them already. Why would you want another podcast about John Wayne Gacy? Why would you want to listen to another podcast about Jeffrey Dahmer? I you know, they're such easy targets because everybody knows who they are. I would rather go down these rabbit holes of, you know, people who aren't well known. Joe Metheny, I did a blog on him. He was the second blog I did. And literally his Wikipedia article had like three sentences on it. And that was so much fun to write an entire, I was looking up court documents and it was just fun. Honestly, I should rewrite the Wikipedia page because I have more information in my blog than that whole Wikipedia page has and just from searching on the internet. It's amazing. It's so much fun. So those are the crimes I like to do. And if you have any that, you know, most people overlook, that's your favorite crime, please send them to me. I will look them up and odds are I'll probably do them because they're probably on my list anyways. And that kind of stuff fascinates me. So, that was a weird little rant, but I just, you know, I want you guys to know that, like, I I do this, as much as I do this for you, to, like, share this experience with you, I like doing it because I really like to research, and I really, this is a good outlet for my anxiety, and it gives me something to do with my idle time, and it, it's, it's therapeutic and helpful for me, and if I can share that with you, like, that's awesome to me, and I love doing this. If I never get popular or nothing ever happens, you know, I this is still something that I would still do even if nobody ever listens to these. Just because it's it's a, a hobbit. It's a hobbit? Are we in Lord of the Rings? It's a hobby that I like to do and it makes me seem less weird when people are like, why are you looking up serial killers? And it's because I have a podcast. <laughs> Gives me an excuse for my weird hob- habit. Hobbits. Um... So, and a weird fun fact, I planned on mentioning this because uh, this is kind of where this comes from. I really, really, really wanted to be a forensic entomologist. Like, that was so fascinating to me. And I was literally one class away from getting my forensic science minor and being a biology major in college. And I saw my first dead body and knew immediately that I was never going to be cut out for that kind of career. I... If you ever want to hear that story, please request it because I'm, I might just do it anyways and talk about my first time seeing a dead body because um, people passed out, I almost fainted, it was an incredible experience, but that's when I knew I had to change my career path. And um, that kind of makes me sad because I think, you know, deep down even then I knew I wanted to do something involving forensics and, you know, true crime related, and that obviously fell through. So this kind of lets me, you know 
do what I like doing but not have to be around the dead bodies that come from that type of thing. You know. Okay, so now let's get down to business. Um, today we're going to be talking about Terry Blair, who was recommended by Rachel. And this story is, it's got a lot of pieces to it. And there's a lot of things that lead up to where we're going to get to. So we're going to start from the beginning and work our way to the end, like more, most storytellers do. So Terry Blair was born on September 16th, 1961 in Kansas City, Missouri. He was born to single mother Janice Blair, who um, suffered from mental illness and only completed high school up to the ninth grade. So that might have been junior high for some of you. It was high school for me. Um, She and her 10 children lived in an extreme poverty-stricken area on Prospect Avenue, which Cleveland has one of those as well. Um, And so I asked Rachel about what this part of town was like and, like, what it is like now. And she said, quote, it is the worst of the worst. It's a very dangerous place. It's not a nighttime thing. It's an all-time thing. So clearly he and his 10, you know, siblings grew up in this environment with a single mom who was probably trying to do her best to do what she could for them. And, you know, it just a family right off the rip, not in a very good place. So Terry was the fourth eldest of 10 children, and he and his family were no stranger to law enforcement. And they're kind of like a crimey Brady Bunch. So we're going to go through a path of a whole bunch of crimes, and none of them are going to be related Well, they're the relatives of Terry Blair, but none of these crimes Terry did at all. So it's going to be a hot minute before we get to what Terry did. So come down this path with me. So Janice Blair, his mother, um, in August of 1978, when Terry is 17, he hears gunshots from outside his home. And I think the story goes he was sitting on the porch of a neighbor's house. He was nearby and he heard the gunshots. Uh, Terry's mom, Janice, had shot and killed her drug-dealing boyfriend, but um, they had been together so long, he was considered a common-law husband. His name was Elton E. Gray. So at the time, Terry is described... So he, this whole thing was an article in the Kansas City Star. And so Terry's described at that time as a 17-year-old Lincoln High School dropout. So obviously he dropped out of high school. That was the only place I saw that. But I'm assuming since it was a local newspaper at the time, that's pretty credible. Um, paramedics arrived at the scene to try and save Elton. And noted that while they worked, six small children sat only feet away watching television in the living room. So they're at the house nearby while their, I guess, common-law stepdad is bleeding out on the floor. So Janice Blair, due to her mental illness and the fact that she entered an Alfred plea, which we're going to go down a sidebar in a second, she was only given five years probation and ordered to receive psychiatric care, but it's unknown whether she completed that or not. I cannot verify or yes or no whether she'd actually completed it. So if you hear the term Alfred plea and you think, huh, that sounds like a little familiar, but I'm not sure what that means. I'm going to tell you why it sounds familiar. Does anybody remember Michael Peterson and the goddamn staircase uh, documentary. Yeah, that's where you've heard Alfred plea before, and we're going to tell you what it is. So, an Alfred plea is where the defendant maintains their innocence, but admit that the evidence presented by the prosecution would likely be enough to persuade a judge or jury to find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So, an Alfred plea is a situation where a defendant will admit that there's evidence to convict them of a higher crime, but at the same time pleading guilty to a lesser charge. So, it's essentially taking a plea 
taking a plea bargain, but like saying that you didn't do it. So you remember this from Michael Peterson case because that's what he did. So Peterson was convicted of killing his wife in 2003. So he was convicted of murder. And so he killed her 2001, was convicted in 2003. He was granted a new trial in 2017, where instead of going to trial, he submitted an Alfred plea that reduced the charge to manslaughter. So he, at the end of the day, was sentenced to to time served and let go. That's why it seems familiar. So in this kind of situation, you would say like, yeah, you could probably convict me on first degree murder, but I'm going to take an Alfred plea, tell you that I'm innocent, and I'll take this charge for something else. So, I mean, I'm not sure where you can and where you can't use that. I'm not sure of what the exact situations. I don't know why Michael Peterson got away with anything that he did, but this worked in um, Janice's favor because she got an Alfred plea and she was released from prison. So that was um, Terry Blair's mom. Now we're going to move on to Walter Blair Jr., which is Terry Blair's brother. So six months after Elton Gray was murdered, the mom's boyfriend, authorities charged Walter with the death of 16-year-old Sandy Shannon, whose body was found in a snowbank on Olive Street. She had been killed by... Oh, it was a man. Sorry, I keep... I've did this so many times. I thought Sandy was a girl. So sorry if her name's Sandy and I assume your gender. He had been killed by a shotgun blast to the back. While um, Walter was in jail for the crime, he met a man who offered to pay him $2,000 to kill a girl named Catherine Jo Allen. She was about to testify against the man at his rape trial. So Walter was out of jail quickly. He had been charged with capital murder, robbery, and assault, but authorities had to drop the charge um, after witnesses refused to testify. So the... Authorities, when they charged him, when they first arrested him, it was about February. So by August, he was out. On August 19, 1979, 21-year-old college student Catherine Jo Allen was abducted at gunpoint from her apartment. Her body was found less than 20 minutes later in a vacant lot. She had been shot in the head and upper body. Walter, who was 18 at the time, would later confess to abducting Allen from her apartment, taking her to the vacant lot, and shooting her while she begged for her life. He would later recant the story. He was convicted of murder and executed in 1999 by lethal injection. He was known as being one of the toughest and most dangerous inmates in the prison. On to Clifford Miller, which is Terry Blair's older half-brother. He was convicted in 1994 for the 1992 abduction of a woman from a bar. Miller... Um, already had a felony account or felony record of robbery, unlawful use of a weapon, and possession of a controlled substance. He forced the woman into his car, shot her in the arm, and then drove her to an abandoned house before raping her repeatedly and beating her until she passed out. Her wounds included a gunshot wound, a fractured skull, a broken jaw, and a broken cheekbone. She spent two months in the hospital recovering. So after that, 11 months after her attack, attack she went to the bar where she had been attacked and her attacker was there he approached her and said it's been a long time so he i can't that's just such a strange story i i don't know why you'd go to a bar that you i mean if i were attacked like that that's savagely beaten at a bar i don't think i'd go back there unless her intention was to maybe find him again which if that's the case and you bring like I think at that point, you tell police what you're doing, you know? You don't just do that unwatched. That seems like a dangerous situation for someone who is just very recently in a dangerous situation. 
So a friend of the victim called police who arrested Miller on the spot. Um, Clifford was sentenced to two life sentences plus 240 years for the charges that included kidnapping and forcible sodomy. Warnetta White was um, Terry Blair's sister. So Warnetta and her husband, Neola White III, were charged with stabbing James L. Bell 30 times. His body was found September 27, 1980 in his apartment on Prospect Avenue. Um, Warnetta promised to testify against her husband and prosecutors dropped her murder charge. However, Missouri law prohibits spouses from testifying against one another. Warnetta uh, filed for divorce but then found out she was pregnant. So in 1984, her husband pled guilty to a reduced charge of second-degree murder. He said that he helped kill Bell, an employee at his upholstery shop, to collect on his life insurance policy. Ten years later, Wernetta was on trial again. The body of her boyfriend, Pablo Gomez, who was a Cuban drug dealer, was found bound and gagged in their apartment. Gomez had suffocated because of a large gag that covered his mouth and nose. He had threatened to cut off Warnetta's supply of crack cocaine, prosecutors suggested. So, Warnetta stated that she and a male friend didn't int- intend to kill Gomez, they just wanted to tie him up so they could steal his drugs and money. After subduing him, they left for a friend's apartment to smoke crack all night. She pled guilty in August 1990 and received 10 years in prison. We're not done yet. Don't get, don't get too excited. We're not done yet. Daniel Blair was uh, Terry Blair's brother. Daniel pleaded guilty in December 1999 to helping someone possess 50 grams or more of cocaine with intent to sell. His sentence is eight years, four months, which I had originally thought was a little extreme for just a little bit of cocaine, but Blair already had a criminal history including arrests and convictions for assaulting people, displaying weapons, stealing robbery, disturbing the peace, violating drug laws, and obstructing an officer. That's eight years, four months doesn't sound like enough time. Um, Diamond Blair was Terry Blair's nephew. He's one of Warnetta's sons. So the three people we're about to talk about, all three of them are sons of Warnetta, which is, they're all uh, Terry's nephews. So Diamond Blair was born in 1975 and was in and out of juvenile care his entire childhood, starting at an age of six. He was caught stealing. He would appear in court from 1987 to 1991 for assault, stealing cars, and running away from the court school for boys. In 1991, when Warnetta was in the Missouri Penitentiary, Diamond was placed in state custody. He escaped and avoided capture for four months. He was charged on November 1991 for the armed robbery of a pizza deliverer. They, he and his friends made out with $200 and three large pizzas. In June of 1992, Diamond Blair received six sentences, the longest being 18 years each, for two counts of first-degree robbery. Other sentences were un. Other sentences were unlawful use of a weapon, armed criminal action, kidnapping, and forcible sodomy. Diamond is scheduled to be released in 2014. I was unable to tell if he's out or not. Next up is Warnetta's second son, um, William C. Blair. He, in December 1991, was sentenced to 15 years for first-degree robbery and was released on September 28, 2003. Within months of his release, William was arrested again and charged with 88 counts of robbery, assault, and armed criminal action in a series of holdups of bars, a convenience store, and a karate studio. These also included an attempted robbery of a liquor store where an employee was shot in the shoulder. Bar patrons some of the holdups had been pistol-whipped, beaten, kicked, and assaulted. And lastly is Neola White IV, which is 
Warnetta's last son. He killed his father, Neola White III, in 2001. He entered his father's upholstery store and shot him in the head for reasons unknown. So that's Terry Blair's family. Um, No wonder he... You know, he was just in the mix of a perfect storm. He lived in a family where he didn't know the boundaries between right and wrong, and it doesn't seem like anybody in his family knew where those boundaries lay. Not even his mom, not his sister. And I think when you grow up living in that kind of environment and you don't know how to stop it, and, you know, you live in that area, the neighborhood where crime is probably crime-riddled. I mean, I've obviously never been there, but I can just expect it if it's such a scary place, you know? It's not surprising that Terry Blair ends up the way he does. Um, His reasons for killing are interesting, which we'll find out in a second, um, considering his upbringing, but let's venture. So in 1982, we're talking about Terry Blair now. In 1982, a few blocks away from Neola White III would eventually meet his maker. A 20-year-old Terry Blair left the body of his ex-girlfriend, Angela Monroe. On the morning of May 15th, Terry called the authorities to tell them the body was there at the corner of Linwood Boulevard and Forest Avenue. Angela Monroe was 19 and seven months pregnant. She also had three children at home. Terry had originally blamed the death on someone else, but then admitted that he was angry at Monroe for becoming a sex worker. Blair originally stated that he confronted her and she tried to get away. He picked up a stick and struck her and then left her lying behind a building. Terry would later say that he had never made this type of confession, but he was still convicted by a jury of second-degree murder in November of that year. He was sentenced to 24 years in prison. So while in the prison system, Terry was moved frequently, racking up a total of 67 conduct violations, including fighting, assault, disobeying orders, possession of contraband, and being in a restricted area. Although that number sounds impressive at first, which I thought this was strange, the average, um... That average out, averages out to about three violations of year, a year for his total time there. Apparently, a normal inmate in the system has four violations a year, which would be several more than what um, Terry Blair had in prison. So I thought that was... I first read that number, and I was like, holy crap, that's a lot of violations. But apparently, it's really not that impressive. So Blair was... Rep- re- bleh. Blair was released from prison in May 2002 on a conditional release to Kansas City facility where parolees can adjust to living outside of custody. A year later, on May 20, 2003, Blair returned to the Kansas City Community Release Center where he stayed until August 8th. He tested positive for marijuana use and fled authorities, landing him in prison until January 21, 2004. On July 14th, the body of Anna Ewing, 42, was found. She was a sex worker. She was strangled with her own clothes and her neck had been broken. Her body was found by a man spraying for weeds behind a vacant apartment building. Her death was officially ruled as an accidental cocaine overdose dose by a medical examiner. Which, if she was strangled with her own clothes and her neck was broken, how on earth would a medical examiner rule that as an accidental cocaine overdose? I mean, I'm assuming she had cocaine in her system, but okay, cool, you tested for cocaine, but you didn't check to make sure her fucking neck was broken. I just thought, I think that's absolutely insane that it's obvious in the system, at least at this time, that the the medical examiner assumed she was a sex worker, assumed she did drugs, 
tested for cocaine and found it was positive and ruled it as an overdose instead of fucking checking her neck to make sure it wasn't broken. And she was strangled with her own clothes. That's just enraging. Just because she's a sex worker does not mean she's any less of a person and doesn't mean she's not entitled to a full, real autopsy medical examiners. <laughs> Sorry about that, Rage. Um, I hate when people take sex workers as being not real people. They absolutely are people, and their job is nothing wrong. So if you don't agree with that, then you don't belong here. Um, so upon closer examination, the confession from Blair, her death was ruled a homicide. Wow, it took that much. So on September 2nd, 2004, the bodies of Patricia Wilson Butler, who was 58, and Shalaya McKenzie, who was 38, who are both sex workers, are found. They are found, one on top of the other, covered by a tarp in an old abandoned garage. Shalaya had been strangled and her neck was broken. Semen in and on Shalaya was positive matched to Terry Blair's DNA. Patricia's body was too decomposed to determine the cause of death, but on Terry Blair's indictment, it says by means of strangulation. It appeared that Patricia's body had been there for about three weeks, while Shalaya's has only been there for two or three days. This makes sense, as Shalaya's body was on top of Patricia's. Terry Blair had made several anonymous 911 calls. He was unaware that the bodies had already been discovered, and he was bragging that he put them there. So that's a little bit of an assumption. Um, there was somebody who testified that they couldn't positively say that the 911 calls came from Terry Blair, but I'm pretty sure they did. But, you know, we'll move on. We'll get to that in a second. On September 3rd, the body of Carmen Hunt, who was 40, another sex worker, was found behind a vacant house. Like Patricia, her cause of death on the indictment was also strangulation. On September 4th, Claudette Junial, 31, was found in the woods behind a boarded-up building. She was also a sex worker. She had been strangled with her own clothes, and her neck was broken. That same day, Darcy I. Williams, another sex worker, was found in an alley. She was strangled with her own clothes, and her neck was broken. So, on the indictment, there are two more murders, those of Sandra Reed, who was 47, and Nelia Harris, who was 33. It might be Nelia, probably Nelia Harris, who was 33. Sandra was found around June 30th, 2004, and her cause of death was broken neck and strangulation. Nelia Harris was killed the same way and found September 20th, 2004. It doesn't say explicitly, but from the trend, one could assume they were also sex workers, and one could assume that Terry Blair also killed them because of the circumstances, the time frame, and how they were killed. So, Terry Blair was also indicted on, fir on first-degree assault on or about August 18, 2004. Um, the defendant choked, her name was Aaliyah Howard, in such a conduct that was substantial step towards the commission of the crime of attempting to kill or cause serious physical injury towards Aaliyah Howard. Um, then lastly, on the indictment, there were three forcible rape charges. I'm leaving the names out because there's no reason to bring a victim into it, although it is public record. Um, so on June 1st, 2004, um, June 6th, 2004, and May 23rd, 2003, Terry Blair had, Terry Blair had intercourse with X by the use of forcible compulsion. So those were also on the indictment for Terry Blair. He was arrested on October 15th, 2004. He was charged with eight counts of murder, of which I just discussed, one count of first-degree assault, and three accounts of rape. So Blair made a deal before the trial even started and said if the charges for Sandra Reed, Nellie Harris, the three rapes, and the assault were dropped, Blair would agree to go to a trial without a jury in exchange for the death penalty being dropped. 
So at first I was kind of confused as to why he did this and, um, and like why they allowed that. But I don't think they thought the evidence towards Terry Blair was enough for, to convict him with a reason, without, with a reasonable doubt, without a reasonable doubt. Um, a lot of the evidence was circumstantial. I mean, Blair's semen was found on one of the victims, but his defense was that he had sex with her. But if, I mean, even that, if you look back to his first, per, you know, the first person he killed, Angela Monroe, who was his girlfriend, who he killed because she was a sex worker. Do you think that Terry Blair would solicit a sex worker to have sex with them? I don't think so, especially if he hates them. He obviously hates them so much. But, I mean, the, even that, I guess you, I guess if you had a really great defense attorney, you could probably prove that to be circumstantial, too. But I digress. So um, there was a linguistics expert testified saying that the 911 calls the police had been receiving to find the five women could possibly not have come from Terry Blair. Um, in the 911 call, the dispatcher this badger asked, how do you know a dead body is there? And he said, I put it there. So when she asks him what his name is, he says, oh, no, no, the body is just here. I have nothing to do with it. And he told the dispatcher to look up under the branches, under the bushes by the alley. It's an abandoned house. It's red. He said the body had been there for two months. Um, he, when asked if he knows the victim's name, he says he doesn't. She's a prostitute. So were the other two, he says. You killed them also, the, um, the 911 person says on the phone. Um, and he said yes. So he called the next day. The killer wants to say he found two more bodies of prostitutes. He calls them scum. It's a, it's a disgrace, he says. One of the bodies has been here for a week, and it's starting to stink. He refuses to give his name, but says he can be referred to as Scott, and that he'll call the next day. He says there are six more bodies to be found. So, the linguistics expert said the caller may have been disguising his voice and said that he never had performed an analysis like this for court proceedings, only in the classroom setting. So, okay, guy, what kind of expert are you? If you can't say for sure one way or the other, if, <laughs> okay, I can listen to phone calls and tell you if it's the same person or not, or if I'm sure or not. Who, who picked you as a linguistics expert to say that it wasn't or could not or maybe might be him? I, it's either is or it isn't, dude. Um, so they couldn't connect Terry to the phone, but were able to determine that the calls came from somewhere close to where Blair lived. Uh, Terry's trial started on March 10th, 2008. The cases were linked by 911 calls to police, which helped them locate the bodies. Since those bodies have been found and detective Blair's, detectives found Blair's DNA on one of the victims, the case seemed to line up. On March 27th, 2008, Terry Blair was found guilty of the murders of Anna Ewing, Patricia Wilson Butler, Shalaya McKenzie, Carmen Hunt, Claudette Janelle, and... Darcy I. Williams. Because Blair has never admitted to killing these women, no true motive can be determined. He is sentenced to life prison with no um, possibility of parole ever. Blair attempted to appeal his conviction but was denied access um, or was denied in August 2009. His reasoning was that his appearance on season two, episode three of, a, of the first 48, titled A Serial Killer Calls, which aired on June 6, 2005, hurt his chance at a fair at a fair trial 
You can find the letter he wrote to the judge on the internet. You can read the whole thing. It sounds like a lawyer told him. Like, it reads like a lawyer told him what to write, and then he just wrote it down and sent it to the judge. Um, I don't think it matters if you're on a TV show or not, dude. (laughs) But it is what it is. Um, So, leaving on his legacy, Terry has two sons, Terry Blair Jr. and Marcel Johnson, and two grandsons, Demarcus and Kemen Johnson. Um, that is Terry Blair and his family. I, I don't know. Part of me almost thought for a second, like, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe the cops had it out for him, because sometimes that does happen, but I just don't think that with such a history of family crime and then him already being you know convicted of a murder like the odds of him murdering more people I feel like are high and the timeline coincides and his semen was on one of the victims so obviously like I feel like my doubts can be qualmed qualmed that's I don't think that's a word okay well that was Terry Blair let me know what you think I had fun researching him so thank you so much Rachel we had some good conversations and I appreciate that so yeah um happy true crime tuesday cheers i got a vodka drink because i'm always nervous to record and i'm sitting on the floor in my closet so i'm gonna go be a normal person now have a great day